Well, I'd, I don't know if you have uh, a particular farewell that stands out in your mind. When we were aboard the Doulos, um, I struck up a really, really good friendship with a guy by the name of Ashley McDonald. Ashley was, for the best part, no farewells just at the moment, we're just you know, just getting into things, but we'll fare well later, and that will be very memorable. But on the, on the Doulos, um, Ashley was a, was a good mate. He was the, he was the chief mate. And uh, I recall um, on a particular Sunday, um, we had gathered, we were sailing, we were out at sea. We'd gathered for our normal uh, church, church service on board when we were sailing. And um, it was really, really bizarre, but the foghorn was, was going off. Um, all through the service, which was usually the, the foghorn on the doulos, you didn't use it very often. It was either serious fog, which had only happened on a couple of occasions in my memory, or alternatively, it was something along the lines of an emergency or a drill, and I was thinking, there's no drills. They wouldn't do drill during a church service, surely. Anyway, the foghorn kept going off, and I caught up with Ashley later on, and he, and he said, yeah, yeah it was, was like really serious, serious fog. And I joined him up on the, on the bridge a little bit later. Um, both of us are coffee lovers, and we'd often have a cup of coffee on the bridge. And, and he was showing me the different radars and equipment that they had for fog, but they still used the old foghorn. Well, when it was time to leave the ship, we're in South Africa at the time, Richards Bay, and I had never seen the ship from this perspective, but I stood um, with the family. We stood on the, on the quayside watching the ship pull away, mooring lines sort of pulled up and so forth. And this was a perspective we'd never gotten. We'd been on board the ship and left many a quayside all over the world, um, some 25 different countries, and I don't know how many ports. We'd left the quayside many, many times, and my perspective was always from the ship looking back at people waving and so forth. And we would sail out and so, and, and so on. I'd never stood on the quayside, waving at the ship, looking at the ship and, and, and thinking, wow, but... But as it kind of slowly drew away and the tugs kind of took it out into the deeper water and then under its own propulsion, it started to set sail. There were quite a few tears in the Hunt family there as we just looked at three years of memories, three years of hard toil, friendships that had been forged with people all over the world. It was, it was quite emotional. And as, we, as, sorry, as the ship took, took out and it was just, you know, um, out truly in the harbour now, out into the deep waters. Something happened that I'd never, never heard before. But Ashley, who was now Captain Ashley, was up on the bridge and he hit the foghorn and I tell you, oh, when, when, he, when he pulled on the foghorn, one long, it seemed eternal blast, something I'd never experienced before. We never used the foghorn on departure. But Ash was up there on the bridge and... I think there was something going on in his heart that was going on in my heart as well as we kind of knew that for some time we'd be saying farewell. That kind of strikes me. That is a very memorable farewell for me. But it would be nothing, nothing compared to the farewell recorded in Acts chapter 1. The disciples have gathered with, with Jesus just as they have been told. And there before their very eyes, we, we read in verse 9, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? A friend of mine who 
pastors of church says, that has got to be the most unfair question in all of Scripture. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go up into heaven. Peter stood there. Peter watched Jesus ascend into heaven. Peter watched him go into the clouds. And Peter heard the angels say in the same way that he departed, he will return. Peter had seen it with his very own eyes. It had changed him forever. It was the most significant farewell he'd ever had. He would never forget that moment. And he knew this. In reverse, Jesus would come back one day, and it would be in the same way that he had just been taken. And so perhaps the the passage we're looking at in Mark chapter 13 takes on special significance for us today. Because when Jesus talks about his return here, as Mark records it, Peter had heard this from Jesus' own lips. He had seen it with his own eyes. He knew how Jesus would return. It was very, very real for him. The passage we're looking at, chapter 13, has been in three parts. I kicked it off a couple of weeks ago. Tom Kimber picked it up. Last week, and you, you wouldn't have heard him in the evening service because we had our, our hot tropics, as I call them, um, but you would have been able to pick up his podcast in the morning. So if you didn't hear Tom speak last Sunday, listen to that podcast. It was a word for our church, and it was a word in season. Have a listen to it. It was a fantastic, fantastic message. And now I'm just going to finish off the chapter, some concluding remarks by Jesus tonight. But this is about Jesus' return, something which I know as you grow up in your Christian life and in your Christian faith, it seems impossibly distant. We grow up thinking about technology and always thinking about the future and what the future is going to look like, and, and it really feels like the world will have no end. We're living in this infatuation with progress. Is it possible, though, in your lifetime? He just may return. Is it possible, actually, before the year is out, he just may return? Is it possible before we're done tonight, as we finish up, and I don't know what song that that Nat and the band have in mind for us to sing, is it possible that as we're singing that song, he just might return? Let's have a look at this passage And let's just ask, Heavenly Father, again, by the Spirit, through your word, would you just come and speak to us tonight? Come and please affect our heart and mind. Come and talk to us. Quieten our hearts. Give us this sense of wonderful anticipation, of expectation, of awe that you have for each individual tonight, I pray. Would it be like climbing up onto your lap and listening to our Heavenly Father's heart? Speak. Here we are, your children. We're listening. Come, Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. We're going to look at verses 28 through to 37. There are two parts to it, really. The first part, Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple. That's what kind of started 
this whole discussion. As they were walking out of the temple, Jesus had said, this whole place is going to be destroyed. Not one brick will be left on another. The disciples were quizzing him about this and just thought, oh, well, when's that going to be? And there they are. They'd walked through the Kidron Valley up onto to Mount Olivet and, and they were looking at the temple. And it must have seemed impossible, absolutely impossible, that the temple would ever be destroyed. And yet Jesus had just predicted that it would. And then the second part refers to those days following the destruction of the temple and Jesus' ultimate return, something that he had shared with them to encourage their hearts because great persecution would break out during the destruction of the temple and, and cause much confusion. Let, let me firstly tackle the first part just, just briefly, verses 28 to 31, Mark chapter 13. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. It's tempting because of the passage just before it, where Jesus predicts his return and talks about coming in glory and so forth. It's tempting to think now these words have to do with all of that. But if that's the case, then there's a very confusing element here, isn't there? And that is, this generation will not pass away. Well, it did. The word generation can actually mean literally a generation, just like we represent a couple of generations here. Or it can also mean people or race. So some translations, I think the Passion Translation, translates it, dealing with this, this issue, as this, this, this Jewish race, the Jewish race or people, will not pass away before these things happen. Picking up on the fact that one interpretation of this is, is that, well, yes, um, uh, obviously uh, the destruction of the temple had, had come, um, and yet here we, here we all are, but... But I'm going to suggest that actually the more complicated reading is the right reading. And that is, no, generation means generation. And Jesus here was actually answering the question that was raised in verse 4 regarding the destruction of the temple. When will it happen and what will be the signs? And Jesus is coming back to that as if, so read your initial question in verse 4. Note the fig tree. And he uses a live example. Note the fig tree. When it's budding... So the signs that I've just mentioned to you, in verse 23, Jesus says, I've now told you all things. I've told you everything that you need to know. Those are the same signs as with a budding fig tree that will tell you that the time is very, very near. In fact, this generation actually will not pass away before these things happen. What things? The things that Jesus has just talked about, the, the horrible persecution that will take place at the fall of the temple. And then Jesus goes on to say that, you know, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. In AD 66, there was a, a rebellion amongst the Jews. AD 68, um, Nero suicides. And the son Titus starts to take over the siege of Jerusalem. In AD 70, the outer walls are breached. And there is a systematic ransacking of both Jerusalem and the temple. Josephus records some of this. And Josephus, 
Uh, sometimes, you know, he exaggerated a little bit as a historian, but nonetheless, we can glean a few things from what he says. And he, he records, while the temple was ablaze, the attackers plundered it, and countless people who were caught by them were slaughtered. There was no pity for age, and no regard was accorded rank. Children and old men, laymen and priests alike were butchered. Every class was pursued and crushed in the grip of war, whether they cried out for mercy or offered resistance. He goes on, such was the, the height of the hill, referring literally to the hill on which the temple was built, and the magnitude of the blazing pile that the entire city seemed to be ablaze. The panic of the people who, cut off from above, were fled down below, they fled into the arms of the enemy, and their shrieks could be heard as they met their fate. The temple melt everywhere, enveloped in flames, and it seemed to be boiling over from its very base, yet the blood seemed more abundant than the flames, and the numbers of the slain greater than those of the slayers. The soldiers climbed over heaps of bodies as they chased the fugitives. We have there a, a picture, a horrible picture, about the siege of Jerusalem, and unfortunately, a record that Jesus' words were true. The prediction was absolutely true, 100%. And he had foretold this to the disciples at this time to help them as they tried to come to grips and understand this, this great persecution. So that's happened in the past. What does that mean for us today? It simply means this. Jesus can be taken at his word. You can trust his word. And let me go a little bit further than that and say this. It is the only word that you can trust. You can trust his word and it is the only word that you can trust. So then Jesus goes on to say something very important. Now, you can trust him at his word. It will come true. So we know that whatever Jesus says next is absolutely certain, 100% guaranteed to come true. It is what it is. You can be sure about it. And so we listen in carefully as Jesus says, so watch for my return. It is guaranteed. It is absolute. It will happen. And he says, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So be on guard. You know, here's a funny thing. Jesus is basically saying, nobody knows the hour of my return. Not even the angels know, not even I know, only the Father knows, so be on guard. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Nobody knows, angels don't know, Jesus doesn't know, only the Father knows, be on guard. But throughout the church age, we read that, but what we hear seems to be this. Nobody knows when Jesus will return. The angels don't know, Jesus himself doesn't know, only the Father knows, let's try and guess. What is it? What is it that we don't understand about nobody knows? Only the Father knows. And so, so we spill much ink and have many conversations about, oh, I wonder. And, and we come up with this scheme and that scheme and we guess the days and so forth. Nobody knows. In the Greek, it simply means nobody knows. 
that's it. That's it. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Only the Father knows. Well, what does the Father know? He knows when his Son will return. And we are waiting on him. He is not waiting on us. He will return at a time where he will fulfill his purposes. A lot of confusion about the return of Jesus, I believe, is, is essentially because we think it's about us. It's not about us at all. It's about God. It's about his glory. It's about his splendor. It's about his plans and his purposes. And when we forget that and we think it's about us, you're coming to get me, right, Lord? When we think that, we get all confused about it'll be now, it'll be later, it'll be, oh, please come now, please, no, after I'm married at least, I want to just you know, experience marriage and all of its delights or something. But, you know, we've got a date in which you know, Jesus is allowed to come back. But we don't know when. We do know this. It will coincide with his purposes, his plan, and we are waiting on him. He is not waiting on us. So be on guard. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come, he says. So what does it look like? And I want to spend most of, most of what I've got to say next, the, the passage, on, on this. What does it look like to be waiting on God? What does it look like to be awaiting, awaiting his return? And I've got two thoughts for you. Firstly, the word diligence. The word diligence. Be on guard, says verse 33. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and he puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and he tells the one at the door to keep watch. Diligence. There's a work to do. While we are waiting for God, there is a work for each of us to do. We each have an assigned task. We each have an area of responsibility. Did you, did you realize that? There is something for you to do as you wait expectantly for Jesus to return. A particular work, a unique work for you to do. You can imagine the servants of the household. You know, there, there might be one servant who, for instance, kind of looks around and says, okay, so we've uh, all got tasks to do. I was assigned the dishes. Don't particularly like dishes. So I might just um, go and supervise something else. You know, if, if that task doesn't get done, it doesn't get done. A little bit like when we um, prayed and kind of sent Amber off last week. We mentioned uh, John chapter 15, verse 16. You have been chosen and appointed to go and bear much fruit. It's sort of the missional element of John 15. You have been chosen and appointed to go and bear fruit. You have been chosen and you have been appointed for a particular work that only you can do, a particular task that has been assigned to you. And the kingdom of God will be the lesser if you don't go about your task. Now, just so we don't get confused in all of this and, and feel that somehow the Christian life is all about working hard for God and striving and so forth, let me, let me add what we know from Jesus about a particular work or a particular task. We were looking in our staff devotion this last week at John chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus says, my father is always at work and so am I. But then he goes on to say, the son can only do that which he sees the Father doing. Isn't that interesting? It's like this divine constraint upon the Son. 
The son can only do that which he sees the father doing. We know from John 15 that Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus seems to be saying here, apart from the father, I can do nothing. A divine constraint upon him. He can only do that which he sees the father doing. Now, his father is always at work, but the father doesn't necessarily show the son all that he does. But where he does show the son, there is an invitation now to come and and join the father's work. There is an area of responsibility. And when we are working in that area, when the Father has shown us what it is that he is doing, we have an invitation to join him. And you can be sure of two things. You have authority and you have power. But guess what? If you are going about things which the Father has not shown you, which is not your job to do, it is not your responsibility, you do not have authority and you do not have power. I wonder whether sometimes burnout and frustration and disappointment in the Christian life is quite simply Christians going about all sorts of things which look good. It's a good thing, but it's not a God thing. The Father didn't show it to you. You just assumed that you should jump in and get involved. And it can lead to much, much disappointment. Many, many years ago, it was Gordon MacDonald writing a book called Ordering Your Private World that pointed out that there are, there are different spheres. There is a sphere of concern. And the, and the closer we grow to God and the more we get to understand God's heart, the more our sphere of concern grows. And our sphere of concern grows, well, just like God's sphere of concern. But imagine God's sphere of concern. I mean, that must be absolutely huge. There's not a person living that God does not know personally, every hair on their head and everything about them and all of their needs. God knows everyone in the world. His sphere of concern is absolutely massive. As we're attuned to him and as we abide in him, our heart becomes like God's heart. His sphere of concern becomes our sphere of concern. But we're not God. And Gordon MacDonald points out that there is a sphere of concern, but there's also a sphere of influence and they're different things. You can have a huge sphere of concern and a very small sphere of influence. McDonald says the thing to look for is where the convergence of these two spheres, because in that overlap there, where your sphere of concern overlaps with your sphere of influence, in that area just there, the Father is showing you where he's at work and inviting you to participate as well. Now, in that area, you can have great effect. There's power, there's authority, there's permission for you to get involved with all that God is doing. But when we work outside of that, we miss it. Let me give you an example. When I was on board the Doulos, one of our first ports was in PNG. I was to speak at a pastor's conference of, of you know, national pastors. And, and one of the guys on the ship said, have you had much experience speaking to pastors? I said, Kenny, I have had zero experience. He said, well, do, you, do you want me to tell you a little bit about it? Please tell me. I'm, I'm all ears. And he said, well, one of the problems as I see it is that the position of pastor within, within P&G culture has become quite elevated. And it can be a sense of entitlement that goes with that and so forth. And, and yet not attention to your personal life and holiness. For instance, a number of pastors sitting in the audience there there will still be domestic abuse going on at home. Now, this, uh, this was just news to me. I'd never even considered this. Suddenly, my sphere of concern had just gone, whoa. 
and, and I, was, I was searching the scriptures. I was wondering, how can I speak to this? This is terrible. And I was, I was thinking, I, I don't know that God is giving me permission to, to tackle this front on. And Anyway, I remember speaking to the, to the pastors, and I just wanted to talk about having a servant heart, servant leadership. And as I was speaking to them, there were lots of smiles and so forth, a few people taking notes, big grins. Everything that I said was well accepted, but I just got a sense, I don't know, did that really hit the mark? And I sat down afterwards feeling kind of disappointed. My sphere of concern, I did not believe necessarily matched my sphere of influence. I just sat down thinking, oh, oh, I don't know. I just don't think I, I hit the mark at all. I don't think I had any impact. As I was sitting there, suddenly... God, God just seemed to give me a, a picture of where my sphere of influence could suddenly overlap with my sphere of concern. It was like in that moment, I got to see what the Father was doing. He was showing me how he was at work, and I got to join him. And it happened like this. I was just sitting there thinking as they all got up to go down to lunch and go down to the dining room, and I thought, as the main, one of the main speakers... Kenny Gann was also speaking as we, we'd be probably sitting on the table with the most prominent pastors in the area and that sort of thing. And I just, I just had my head in my hands. I just sort of thought, I just don't feel like it, Lord. I've got this huge burden, this concern. And all of a sudden, I had a different picture. Instead of sitting at the most important table with all the most important pastors, what if I ditched my, ditched my suit coat? went down to the galley and got an apron and served them. And so I did. I took the back way. I went down the back stairs of the doulos. I got to the galley ahead of pretty much everybody, dished my suit jacket, found an apron, and I stood there behind the fried rice. Most meals were fried rice on the ship. I guess you can use anything over a week for fried rice, can't you? And as the pastors were queuing past, there I was serving them fried rice on the plate, and they were just staring at me. This just could not compute. They were looking at me thinking, you look like the guy who was just speaking up in the main lounge. How could you be down here in the kitchen? And they're, they're trying to make, the, it's just doing their head in. And suddenly I could see where the father was at work and it was the most wonderful thing. I have never had so much fun serving fried rice. <laughs> but I got to serve them and demonstrate and actually model what it was that I was hopelessly trying to say upstairs, and it just didn't seem to hit the mark. But now I could demonstrate it. And it was just a beautiful time where the father was showing me where he was at work, and he opened up an opportunity where my sphere of concern could now match my sphere of influence. We need to understand the work that it is, the assigned task that it is, that God has for, for each and every one of us. And it's not just one grand work like Mr. Holland's opus or something. It's, it's every day there are works, there are things in which the Father wants to show you so that you can join him every day. I mean, it just makes the Christian life absolutely an adventure, the things that he has in store. But we have to have eyes to see and we have to have a heart that's open and we have to be willing to say, Father, show me where you're at work. And we also have to be willing to acknowledge where he has not shown us where he's at work. Is he at work? Absolutely. The Father's always at work. But he doesn't ask us to take on responsibilities that aren't ours. The first part of what does it look like to be waiting for Jesus is diligence. We need to be diligent about the kingdom work. 
It's like a man going away. He leaves his house. He puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task. The first word is diligence. What does it look like to wait for Jesus' return? Diligence. The second word is vigilance. Vigilance. Verse 35, therefore keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch, watch, vigilance. The word here is talking about an expectant watching, not just a casual watching, not just kind of you know, checking in from time to time, but an expectant watching. If I, if I think about the most expectant watching that I've ever done, without a doubt, without a doubt, it'd be my wedding day. Waiting for my bride to walk the aisle. I never doubted that Bronwood would come down that aisle. Never, never doubted it. Not because of the stunning groom that she would meet, but because of who she was, her character. She's just the most beautiful person I'd ever met. And I knew that she was good to her word. I knew she'd come down that aisle. And as she did, it was just spectacular. There's a moment, those of you who are married, you'll never forget. That's expectant watching, 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 watching. And you, you can't get tired of it. Oh, yeah, they're fashionably late, aren't they, Aaron? <laughs> we know that, but you, you just don't get tired of watching. I said this morning, I have never officiated at a wedding where all of a sudden the groom's party are kind of saying, well, we've given them an extra five minutes. Let's go get burgers and, and kind of walk off. Or, you know, like, oh, it's exhausting setting up last night. You know, I'm just going to take a nap. Somebody come and wake me afterwards. That is not expectant watching. Expectant watching never, never tires because it knows the amazing thing that is, that is coming our way. But Jesus says, don't grow tired. Expectant watching means that you are anticipating it with great joy. You know what's coming and you just can't wait. Interestingly, Jesus then goes on to say, now, hey, in your weariness, don't fall asleep. Don't go so tired that you fall asleep. As a euphemism, it can actually mean become dead. Don't die on watch, spiritually speaking. Don't become, as it were, indifferent to your salvation. Don't lose the joy of your salvation and awaiting your precious Saviour. Air France Flight 447 from Brazil to Paris a number of years ago. It was a fatal plane crash, fell into the Atlantic. It took a couple of months to recover the black box, and when they did, they finally got to the, got to the heart of the matter. Um, a full flight. It had three crew members. It usually wouldn't only have two, but they had a third crew member on this occasion too just because of the hours that they had to log. The captain had done takeoff and seen the plane, for the first part of the, the trip. And then he had, after about three and a half hours into the journey, he'd actually gone back to the cabin for a little bit of rest and sleep, but was woken up shortly after that by a panicked crew, the two first officers, one with vast experience, one with a little experience. And the one with the less experience actually had the controls at the time. But he was suddenly the autopilot switched off and went to manual and 
And as that happened, he was getting strange readings on the speed. They were going far too fast, and so he pulled back on the throttle. And then the, the store warning signal went off, so they're going too, too slow and in danger of, of stalling. And then, and then the store warning went off. Anyway, nonetheless, they increased the thrust a little bit and increased the pitch, but, but nonetheless, the altitude kept dropping. And so what, what's, not, what's not right here? And they were very, very confused about, is it the altitude reading? Is it the speed? They just kept increasing the throttle, but the speed readings were all over the place. They pitched the nose further, and, and the more experienced first officer, kind of seeing that a store was, was imminent, said, I'll take the controls, and he tried to lower the nose and get back into a dive to, to pick the flight up again. The captain came out, and he was trying to work out what was going wrong, but within about three to four minutes, it fell from its cruising altitude and landed belly first in the Atlantic Ocean. Very, very tragic. What they discovered was that it hit a storm. The storm had iced over the speed sensors, and so it was no longer giving the proper speed readings. When the pilot pulled back on the throttle the first time, the the plane just slowed down and, and went into a stall, and after that, it didn't matter the pitch, it didn't matter how much throttle it was, it just did not have speed and it, it was on an inevitable descent. But the storms of life sometimes, life's disappointments, things don't work out how we, how we want them to. We can, we can have, spiritually speaking, frozen senses. Things don't make sense anymore. We, we can't make sense of the Christian life and and God, and we start to believe lies and deception and all sorts of things, we become vulnerable and our spiritual senses are no longer giving us the correct information. We become indifferent to both our salvation and our saviour. We grow tired. We start to fall asleep in our faith and we're no longer expecting, expecting a return of the Lord. It can also, though, when Jesus says, talking about falling asleep. It can also mean that that kind of sleepy spirituality which is growing slothful or accommodating sin. In this regard, I'd say possibly just falling in love with the world and and valuing what the world has to offer more than than what God has to offer. Looking more forward to to your future and the things that you have planned and your plans and the possibilities and the opportunities that are ahead of you rather than the Lord's return. Sometimes even thinking it'd be better if the Lord didn't come back now because I'm saving up for a car and I really want to get the car. I'm working towards a job and I really want to get that job. I hope to get married and, and so on and so forth. We have plans for our life and we have optimism about the future. And if any generation thought that the future, we can do absolutely anything. It's this generation, right? Technology just keeps yelling it out to you. Look at the possibilities. Look at the possibilities. It feels like there will never be an end date. Feels like, hey, <laughs> socially we're evolving. Humanism's a wonderful experiment. Things will go on. Things will improve. And we don't even see the demise of our world around us. And sometimes we need to realize we have lost our first love because the world has become it. James Dobson wrote a couple of good books that I latched onto very, very early in my fathering, and one of them was, if you are going to have that awkward talk with your son, kind of pre-adolescent, try and do it at around age 11. You know, it's, it'll be easier for everybody, really, then. 
And so we thought, and Bron and I would talk about this at length, okay, let's make it fun. The awkward talk that you've got to have as a father to your son, let's tie it in with a theme park or something. And so I remember I took, I took one of them to um, Tampa Bay, Florida, because we're living in the US at that time, and another to a water park, and, and another, uh, the third son, to, to the movies, actually, to, to see more cop. Um, that was his choice, and Tawonga Zoo. But different times we did something fun, and along the way we would have that talk. But part of it, actually, it wasn't just about birds and the bees and all of that sort of stuff, but I would actually talk about, about the lure of the world. And I don't know that I necessarily did it with each of the sons, but, but I do remember sharing a song by Keith Green that had really touched my heart as a young man called Song to Josiah. Um, Keith had written it to his, to his firstborn son. And the words, I won't sing it for you, but the words are are talking about not falling in love with the world. Oh, my son, he says, I'm weak and I'm trembling. For the Lord, I'm always remembering. Oh, what a strong shepherd holds you in his arms. He'll break you and he'll make you his own. And then he'll take you home. He says, well, if I could, I would protect you from what you will see. This world will promise love and beauty, but it lied to me. And I will show you if you will listen, and I will promise to listen too. Oh, yes, there are some who love the lies. They will kill you if they can, though you speak the truth in love. They will hate you like the man, Jesus. Although he was God, he allowed himself broken for you. And then again, well, if I could, I would protect you from what you will see. This world just might seem so alive, but it's dead to me. And I will teach you if you will hear me, and I will promise to hear you too. Yes, I do. And when he's saying that in concert, if you listen to the live version, he finished it off, and he says, the Lord says to us tonight, he gave us his son. Why won't we give him our life in return? All of it. Why not? He loves us. Be vigilant. Keep watching. Be diligent. Give Jesus everything. Be vigilant. Keep watching and do not grow tired. Do not grow tired. At a delightful morning, yesterday morning, my dad dropped in. He's... He's 84 or 5 or 6. He's in his 80s. <laughs> 84, I think. On his 50th birthday, I gave him a one-year Bible. And he's just finished his 34th reading through the Bible. He does it every year. And as he sat across the table and we just lingered together, had a cup of tea, he um, just got chatting, as he sometimes does. And he said, um, you know, one of the things that burdens him greatly is just people who have grown tired in their faith. They've just gone tired. And, and I looked at my dad, and as he shared his story, and as he shared with me his morning routine and his love of God and his commitment to the Word and his prayer life and who he's praying for and what he's doing, 
I just looked across the table at probably one of my heroes. He's finishing well. He's finishing real well. And Peter was finishing well too. He remembered all of these things. He had the promise. Just as, just as he ascended, so he will return. Peter knew that. But now the Apostle Paul was dead and he's writing his second epistle. And he's worried about the impact, about this waiting, waiting, waiting for the Lord's return. Because there are some scoffers. There are some who are saying, when's he coming? Like he promised. Ever heard that? And Peter knows that his time is near as well, but he's finishing well. And so he says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, and I'm finishing with these words, do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand it. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. For we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. There's Peter's last words to a fledgling church trying to cope with things not turning out the way that they thought. Waiting for God includes diligence. Waiting for God includes vigilance. And so I say to you, just as Jesus said to, to his disciples, I say to you what I say to everyone. Watch. Watch. Keep watching. I'm of that school of thought that there are no particular signs that we are waiting for to be fulfilled before his return. And so it could be any time, soon, your lifetime, maybe even mine, haven't got long, maybe this year, maybe tomorrow, maybe tonight, whatever, keep watch, keep watch, let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you so much for your word. It delights our hearts. It encourages us. It always speaks to us. And tonight we're just being reminded to wait on you. You always fulfill your promises. Your word never fails. What you have said is guaranteed to happen. It really will. And it may just happen in our lifetime. We don't know. We're not going to go starting to guess, but we know what to do. We know to find that thing it is that, that you want us to be about and to just keep watching, keep waiting with great expectancy. Lord, I pray that everyone here will one day have a testimony, like my dad's, of finishing well. Help us to finish well. Let it be, Jesus.